1. Stories of Later American History by Wilbur F. G. R. D. A. Formerly Superintendent of Schools, Springfield, Mass. Author of A History of the United States for Schools, Elementary History of the United States, American Leaders and Heroes, American Beginnings in Europe, Stories of American Explorers, Colonial Days, and Stories of Early American History. Preface this book, like Stories of Early American History follows somewhat closely the course of study prepared by the Committee of Eight. The present volume covering the topics outlined for Grade V while the earlier one includes the material suggested for Grade ID. It was the plan of that committee to take up in these grades, largely in a biographical way, a great part of the essential facts of American history, and with this plan the author, who was a member of that committee, was in hearty accord. This method, it is believed, serves a double purpose. In the first place, It is the best possible way of laying the foundation for the later and more detailed study of United States history in the higher grammar grades by those pupils who are to continue in school, and in the second, it gives to that large number of pupils who will leave school before the end of the sixth grade which is at least half of all the boys and girls in the schools of the country some acquaintance with the leading men and prominent events of American history. It is without doubt a great mistake to allow half of the pupils to go out from our public schools with almost no knowledge of the moral and material forces which have made this nation what it is today. It is an injustice to the young people themselves, it is also an injury to their country, the vigor of whose life will depend much upon their intelligent and patriotic support. With this conviction, it has been the author's desire to make the story of the events concrete, dramatic, and lifelike by centering them about leaders, heroes and other representative men, in such a way as to appeal to the imagination and to influence the ideals of the child. In so doing, he has made no attempt to write organized history tracing out its intricate relations of cause and effect. At the same time, however, he has aimed to select his facts and events so carefully that the spirit of our national life and institutions, as well as many of the typical events of American history, may be presented. It is confidently hoped that the fine illustrations and the attractive typographical features of the book will help to bring vividly before the mind of the child the events narrated in the text. Another aid in making the stories vivid will, it is intended, be found in some things to think about. These and many similar questions, which the teacher can easily frame to fit the needs of her class, will help the pupil to make real the life of days gone by as well as to connect it with the present time and with his own life. In conclusion. I wish to acknowledge my deep obligations to Mr. Forrest Morgan, of the Watkinson Library, Hartford, and to Miss Elizabeth Peepeck, of the Hartford Public High School, both of whom have read the manuscript and have made many valuable criticisms and suggestions. Wilbur F. G. Ordee, Hartford, Con, April 15, 1915, Contents Chapter I. Patrick Henry I.I., Samuel Adams I.I., The War Begins Near Boston I.D. George Washington in the Revolution via Nadia and A.L. Green and other heroes in the South V.I. John Paul Jones V.I.I. Daniel Boone V.I.I. James Robertson I.X. John S.E. V.I.R.X. George Rogers Clark Z.I. The New Republic X.I.I. Increasing the size of the New Republic X.I.I. Internal Improvements X.I.V. The Republic Grows Larger X.V. Three Great Statesmen X.V.I. The Civil War X.V.I.I. Four Great Industries Index Illustrations Pioneers on the Overland Route. Westward George I.I.I. Patrick Henry Patrick Henry delivering his speech in the Virginia House of Burgesses William Pitt Street John's Church. 
Richmond Samuel Adams Patriots in New York destroying stamps intended for use in Connecticut Fenoy Hall, Boston Old South Church, Boston the Boston Tea Party, Carpenters Hall, Philadelphia John Hancock John Hancock's home, Boston the Minutemen Old North Church Paul Revere's Ride Monument on Lexington Common marking the line of the Minutemen Concord Bridge President Langdon, the President of Harvard College. Praying for the Banker Hill Entrenching Party on Cambridge Common just before their departure Prescott at Banker Hill Banker Hill Monument George Washington Washington, Henry, and Pendleton on the way to Congress at Philadelphia the Washington Elm at Cambridge, under which Washington took command of the Army Sir William Howe Thomas Jefferson looking over the rough draft of the Declaration of Independence the retreat from Long Island Nathan Hale British and Hessian soldiers powder horn, bullet flask and buckshot pouch used in the revolution General Burwine surrendering to General Gates Marquis to Lafayette Lafayette offering his services to Franklin Winter at Valley Forge Nathan L. Green the meeting of Green and Gates upon Green's assuming command Daniel Morgan Francis Marion Marion surprising a British wagon train John Paul Jones battle between the Ranger and the Drake the fight between the Bonham Richard and the Serapis Daniel Boone Boone's escape from the Indians Boanis Burl Boone throwing tobacco into the eyes of the Indians who had come to capture him James Roberts in living room of the early settler grinding. Indian corn a Kentucky pioneers cabin John Sevierra barbecue of 1780 battle of Kings Mountain George Rogers Clark Clark on the way to Kaskaskia Clark's surprise at Kaskaskia Wampum Peace Belt Clark's advance on Vance and George Washington Washington's home. Mount Vernon tribute rendered to Washington at Trenton Washington taking the oath of office as first president. At Federal Hall. New York City Washington's inaugural cherry line with me with me Scott Gin a colonial planter a slave settlement Thomas Jefferson, Monticello, the home of Jefferson a rice field in Louisiana a flatboat on the Ohio River House in New Orleans where Louis Philippe stopped in 1798 a public building in New Orleans built in 1794 Mary Wether Louis William Clark Buffalo hunted by Indians the Lewis and Clark expedition working its way westward Andrew Jackson, the Hermitage the home of Andrew Jackson fighting the Seminole Indians. Under Jackson Robert Fulton Fulton's first experiment with paddle wheels the Clermont in duplicate at the Hudson Fulton celebration. 1909 the opening of the Erie Canal in 1825 the ceremony called the Marriage of the Waters Erie Canal on the right and aqueduct over the Mohawk River. New York, Tom Thumb, Peter Cooper's locomotive working model. First used near Baltimore in 1830 Railroad Poster of 1843 Comparison of DeWitt Clinton, Locomotive and Train. The first train operated in New York. With a modern locomotive of the New York Central or RSFB Morse the first telegraph instrument modern telegraph office the operation of the modern railroad is dependent upon the telegraph Sam Houston flag of the Republic of Texas David Crockett the fight at the Alamo John C. Fremont Fremont's expedition. Crossing the Rocky Mountains Kit Carson Sutter's Mill Placer Mining in the days of the California Gold Rush John C. Calhoun Calhoun's Office and Library Henry Clay The Birthplace of Henry Clay Near Richmond The Schoolhouse in The Slashes Daniel Webster The Home of Daniel Webster Marshfield, Mass. Henry Clay Addressing the United States Senate in 1850 Abraham Lincoln Lincoln's Birthplace Lincoln Studying by Firelight Lincoln Splitting Rails Lincoln as a Boatman Lincoln Visiting Wounded Soldiers Robert E. Lee Lee's Home at Arlington, Virginia Jefferson Davis Thomas J. Jackson A Confederate Flag J.E.B. Stewart Confederate Soldiers Union Soldiers Ulysses S. Grant Grant's Birthplace, Point Pleasant, Ohio General and Mrs. Grant with their son at City Point.
Virginia William Tecumseh Sherman Sherman's march to the sea Philip H. Sheridan Sheridan rallying his troops the McLean house where Lee surrendered General Lee on his horse. Traveler Cotton Field in Blossom Wheatfield Grain Elevators at Buffalo Catalog The Western Plains Iron Smelters Iron Ore Ready for Shipment Maps Boston and Vicinity The War in the Middle States The War in the South Early Settlements in Kentucky and Tennessee George Rogers Clark in the Northwest The United States in 1803 After the Louisiana Purchase Colored Jackson's Campaign Scene of Houston's Campaign Three Months Western Explorations Map of the United States Showing First and Second Secession Areas Colored Route of Sherman's March to the Sea The Country Around Washington and Richmond Stories of Later American History Chapter I Patrick Henry the Last French War had cost England so much that at its close she was heavily in debt as England must now send to America a standing army of at least 10,000 men to protect the colonies against the Indians and other enemies, the king, George III, reasoned, it is only fair that the colonists should pay a part of the cost of supporting it. The English parliament, being largely made up of the king's friends, was quite ready to carry out his wishes, and pass a law taxing the colonists. This law was called the Stamp Act. It provided that stamps very much like our postage stamps but costing all the way from one cent to fifty dollars each should be put upon all the newspapers and almanacs used by the colonies, and upon all such legal papers as wills, deeds, and the notes which men give promising to pay back borrowed money. When news of this act reached the colonists they were angry. It is unjust, they said. Parliament is trying to make slaves of us by forcing us to pay money without our consent. The charters which the English king granted to our forefathers when they came to America make us free men just as much as if we were living in England. In England it is the law that no free man shall pay taxes unless they are levied by his representatives in Parliament. We have no one to speak for us in Parliament, and so we will not pay any taxes which Parliament votes. The only taxes we will pay are those voted by our representatives in our own colonial assemblies. They were all the more ready to take the stand because for many years they had bitterly disliked other English laws which were unfair to them. One of these forbade selling their products to any country but England. And, of course, if they could sell to no one else, they would have to sell for what the English merchants chose to pay. Another law said that the colonists should buy the goods they needed from no other country than England, and that these goods should be brought over in English vessels. So in buying as well as in selling they were at the mercy of the English merchants and the English ship owners, who could set their own prices, but even more unjust seemed the law forbidding the manufacture in America of anything which was manufactured in England. For instance, iron from American mines had to be sent to England to be made into full articles, and then brought back over the sea in English vessels and sold to the colonists by English merchants at their own price. Do you wonder that the colonists felt that England was taking an unfair advantage? You need not be told that these laws were strongly opposed. In fact, the colonists, thinking them unjust, did not hesitate to break them. Some, in spite of the laws, shipped their products to other countries and smuggled the goods they received in exchange, and some dared make articles of iron, wool, or other raw material, both for their own use and to sell to others. We will not be used as tools for England to make out of us all the profit she possibly can. They declared, we are not slaves but free-born Englishmen, and we refuse to obey laws which shackle us and rob us of our rights. So when to these harsh trade laws the Stamp Act was added, great indignation was aroused. Among those most earnest in opposing the act was Patrick Henry. Let us take a look at the early life of this powerful man. He was born in 1736, in Hanover County, Virginia. 
His father was an able lawyer, and his mother belonged to a fine old Welsh family, but Patrick, as a boy, took little interest in anything that seemed to his older friends worthwhile. He did not like to study nor to work on his father's farm. His delight was to wander through the woods, gun in hand, hunting for game, or to sit on the bank of some stream fishing by the hour. When not enjoying himself out of doors he might be heard playing his violin. Of course the neighbors said, a boy so idle and shiftless will never amount to anything, and his parents did not know what to do with him. They put him, when fifteen years old, as clerk into a little country store. Here he remained for a year, and then opened a store of his own, but he was still too lazy to attend to business, and soon failed. When he was only eighteen years old, he married, the parents of the young couple, anxious that they should do well, gave them a small farm and a few slaves, but it was the same old story, the young farmer would not take the trouble to look after his affairs, and let things drift, so before long the farm had to be sold to pay debts, once more Patrick turned to storekeeping, but after a few years he failed again, he was now 23 years old, with no settled occupation, and with a wife and family to support, no doubt he seemed to his friends an heir do well, about this time he decided to become a lawyer, he borrowed some law books, and after studying for six months, he applied for permission to practice law, although he passed but a poor examination, he at last was started on the right road, he succeeded well in his law practice, and in a few years had so much business that people in his part of Virginia began to take notice of him, in 1765, soon after the Stamp Act was passed by the British Parliament, he was elected a member of the Virginia House of Burgesses, a body not unlike our state legislature. Patrick Henry's fiery speech against the Stamp Act history gives us a vivid picture of the young lawyer at this time as he rides on horseback along the country road toward Williamsburg, then the capital of Virginia. He is wearing a faded coat, leather knee breeches, and yarn stockings, and carries his law papers in his saddle bag. Although but twenty-nine, his tall, thin figure stoops as if bent with age. He does not look the important man he is soon to become. When he reaches the little town of Williamsburg, he finds great excitement. Men gather in small groups on the street, talking in anxious tones. Serious questions are being discussed. What shall we do about the Stamp Act? They say, shall we submit and say nothing? Shall we send a petition to King George asking him for justice? Shall we beg Parliament to repeal the Act? Or shall we take a bold stand and declare that we will not obey it? Not only on the street, but also in the House of Burgesses was great excitement. Most of the members were wealthy planters who lived on great estates. So much weight and dignity had they that the affairs of the colony were largely under their control. Most of them were loyal to the mother country, as they liked to call England, and they wished to obey the English laws as long as these were just. So they counseled, let us move slowly. Let nothing be done in a passion. Let us petition the king to modify the laws which appear to us unjust, and then, if he will not listen, it will be time to refuse to obey. We must not be rash. Patrick Henry, the new member, listened earnestly, but he could not see things as these older men of affairs saw them. To him delay seemed dangerous. He was eager for prompt, decisive action, tearing a blank leaf from a law book. He hastily wrote some resolutions, and, rising to his feet, he read them to the assembly. We can easily picture the scene. This plainly dressed rustic with his bent shoulders is in striking contrast to the prosperous plantation owners, with their powdered hair, ruffled shirts, knee breeches, and silver shoe buckles. 
they give but a listless attention as Henry begins in quiet tones to read his resolutions. Who cares what this country fellow thinks? Is their attitude? Who is he anyway? We never heard his voice before. It is but natural that these men, whose judgment has been looked up to for years, should regard as an upstart this young, unknown member, who presumes to think his opinion worth listening to in a time of great crisis like this. But while they sit in scornful wrath, the young orator's eyes begin to glow. His stooping figure becomes erect, and his voice rings out with fiery eloquence. The General Assembly of Virginia, and only the General Assembly of Virginia, he exclaims, has the right and the power of laying taxes upon the people of this colony. These are stirring words, and they fall amid a hushed silence. Then the debate grows hot, as members rise to speak in opposition to his burning eloquence. But our hero is more than a match for all the distinguished men who disagree with him. Like a torrent, his arguments pour forth and sweep all before them. The bold resolutions he presents are passed by the assembly. It was a great triumph for the young order. On that day Patrick Henry made his name. Stick to us, old fellow, or we're gone, said one of the plain people, giving him a slap on the shoulder as he passed out at the close of the stormy session. The unpromising youth had suddenly become a leader in the affairs of the colony, not only in Virginia, but also in other colonies. His fiery words acted like magic in stirring up the people against the Stamp Act. He had proved himself a bold leader, willing to risk any danger for the cause of justice and freedom. You would expect that in the colonies there would be strong and deep feeling against the Stamp Act, but perhaps you will be surprised to learn that even in England many leading men opposed it. They thought that George I.I.I. was making a great mistake in trying to tax the colonies without their consent. William Pitt, a leader in the House of Commons, made a great speech, in which he said, I rejoice that America has resisted. He went on to say that if the Americans had meekly submitted, they would have acted like slaves. Burke and Fox, other great statesmen, also befriended us, and the English merchants and ship owners who were losing heavily because the Americans refused to buy any English goods as long as the Stamp Act was in force, joined in begging Parliament that the Act be repealed. This was done the next year. Other unjust measures followed, but before we take them up, let us catch another glimpse of Patrick Henry. Ten years after his great speech at Williamsburg, another great speech by Patrick Henry the people of Virginia are again greatly aroused. King George has caused Parliament to send English soldiers to Boston to force the unruly people of Massachusetts to obey some of his commands, against which they had rebelled. Virginia has stood by her sister colony, and now the royal governor of Virginia, to punish her, has prevented the House of Burgesses from meeting at Williamsburg. But the Virginians are not so easily kept from doing their duty, with a grim determination to defend their rights as free men. They elect some of their leaders to act for them at this trying time. These meet in Richmond at Old Street John's Church, which is still standing. Great is the excitement, and thoughtful people are very serious, for the shadows of the war cloud grow blacker hour by hour. The Virginians have already begun to make ready to fight if they must, but many still hope that all disagreements may yet be settled peaceably, and therefore advise acting with caution. Patrick Henry is not one of these. He believes that the time has come when talking should give place to prompt, decisive action. The war is at hand. It cannot be avoided. The colonists must fight or slavishly submit. So intense is his belief that he offers in this meeting a resolution that Virginia should at once prepare to defend herself. Many of the leading men stoutly oppose this resolution as rash and unwise. At length Patrick Henry rises to his feet, his face pale, 
and his voice trembling with deep emotion. Again we see the bent shoulders straighten and the eyes flash. His voice rings out like a trumpet. As he goes on with increasing power, men lean forward in breathless interest. Listen to his ringing words, we must fight. I repeat it, sir. We must fight. An appeal to arms and to the God of hosts is all that is left us. They tell us, sir, that we are weak, unable to cope with so formidable an adversary. But when shall we be stronger? Will it be the next week? Or the next year? Will it be when we are totally disarmed? And when a British guard shall be stationed in every house? Shall we gather strength by irresolution and inaction? Shall we acquire the means of effectual resistance by lying supinely on our backs and hugging the delusive phantom of hope? Until our enemies shall have bound us hand and foot, sir, we are not weak if we make a proper use of the means which the God of nature hath placed in our hands. There is no retreat but in submission and slavery. Our chains are forged. Their clanking may be heard on the plains of Boston. The war is inevitable and let it come. I repeat it, sir, let it come. Gentlemen may cry peace. Peace but there is no peace. The war is actually begun. The next gale that sweeps from the north will bring to our ears the clash of resounding arms. Our brethren are already in the field. Why stand we here idle? What is it that gentlemen wish? What would they have? Is life so dear? Or peace so sweet? As to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery? Forbid it. Almighty God. I know not what course others may take. But as for me. Give me liberty. Or give me death. What wonder that the audience sways to his belief. He was a true prophet. For in less than four weeks the first gun of the revolution was fired in the quiet town of Lexington, Massachusetts. Undoubtedly Patrick Henry's fiery spirit had done much to kindle the flame which then burst forth. Not long after this, he was made commander-in-chief of the Virginia forces 1775. And the next year was elected governor of Virginia. When the war in the declaring of which he had taken so active a part was over, Patrick Henry retired at the age of 58-1794, to an estate in Charlotte County called Red Hill, where he lived a simple and beautiful life. He died in 1799. Without doubt he was one of the most eloquent orators our country has ever produced, and we should be grateful to him because he used his great gift in helping to secure the freedom we now enjoy. Some things to think about one. What was the Stamp Act? Why did Parliament pass it? And why did the colonists object to it? 2. What did Patrick Henry mean by saying that the General Assembly of Virginia, and only the General Assembly of Virginia had the right and the power of laying taxes upon the people of that colony? 3. Have you in your mind a picture of young Patrick Henry as he rode on horseback along the country road toward Williamsburg? Describe this picture as clearly as you can. 4. What did William Pitt think of the Stamp Act? Why did Parliament repeal it? 5. Can you explain Patrick Henry's power as an orator? When did he make a great speech in Street John's Church, Richmond? 6. What do you admire in Patrick Henry? 7. Do not fail to locate every event upon your map. Chapter I.I. Samuel Adams While Patrick Henry was leading the people of Virginia in their defiance of the Stamp Act, exciting events were taking place in Massachusetts under another colonial leader. This was Samuel Adams. Even before Virginia took any action, he had introduced in the Massachusetts Assembly resolutions opposing the Stamp Act, and they were passed. This man, who did more than anyone else to arouse the love of liberty in his colony, was born in Boston in 1722. His boyhood was quite different from that of Patrick Henry. He liked to go to school and to learn from books, 
and he cared little for outdoor life or sport of any kind. As he grew up, his father wished him to become a clergyman, but Samuel preferred to study law, his mother opposing this. However, he entered upon business life. This perhaps was a mistake, for he did not take to business, and, like Patrick Henry, he soon failed, even losing most of the property his father had left him. Samuel Adams an inspiring leader but although not skillful in managing his own affairs, he was a most loyal and successful worker for the interests of the colony. In fact, before long, he gave up most of his private business and spent his time and strength for the public welfare. His whole income was the very small salary which he received as clerk of the Assembly of Massachusetts. This was hardly sufficient to pay for the food needed in his household, but his wife was so thrifty and cheerful and his friends so glad to help him out because of the time he gave to public affairs, that his home life, though plain, was comfortable, and his children were well brought up, poor as he was, no man could be more upright, the British, fearing his influence, tried at different times to bribe him with office under the pin and to buy him with gold, but he scorned any such attempts to turn him aside from the path of duty, the great purpose of his life seemed to be to encourage the colonists to stand up for their rights as freemen, and to defeat the plans of King George and Parliament in trying to force the colonists to pay taxes. In this he was busy night and day. In the assembly and in the town meeting all looked to him as an able leader, and in the workshops, on the streets, or in the shipyards men listened eagerly while he made clear the aims of the English king, and urged them to defend their rights as freeborn Englishmen, even at the close of a busy day. The earnest, liberty-loving man gave himself little rest. Sometimes he was writing articles for the newspapers, and sometimes urgent letters to the various leaders in Massachusetts and in the other colonies. Long after midnight, those who passed his dimly lighted windows could see Sam Adams hard at work writing against the Tories. Had you seen him at this time, you would never have thought of him as a remarkable man. He was of medium size, with keen gray eyes and hair already fast turning white, his head and hands trembled as if with age, though he was only forty-two years old and in good health, he was a great power in the colony, not only did he rouse the people against the Stamp Act, but he helped to organize, in opposition to it, societies of patriots called Sons of Liberty, who refused to use the stamps and often destroyed them, in Massachusetts, as in Virginia and elsewhere. The people refused to buy any English goods until this hateful act was repealed. At the close of a year, before it had really been put into operation, the act was repealed, as we have already seen. But this did not happen until many resolutions had been passed, many appeals made to the king, and after much excitement, then great was the rejoicing. In every town in the country bonfires were lighted, and every colonial assembly sent thanks to the king. But the obstinate, Power-loving George I.I.I. was not happy about this repeal. In fact, he had given in very much against his will. He wanted to rule England in his own way. And how could he do so if he allowed his stubborn colonists in America thus to get the better of him? So he made up his mind to insist upon some sort of attacks. In 1767, therefore, only one year after the repeal of the Stamp Act, he asked Parliament to pass a law taxing glass, lead, paper, tea and a few other articles imported into the colonies. This new tax was laid, but again the colonists said, we had no part in levying it, and if we pay it, we shall be giving up our rights as freemen. But how can we help ourselves? 
Samuel Adams and other leaders answered, We can resist it just as we did the Stamp Act by refusing to buy any goods whatever from England. To this the merchants agreed. While the unjust tax was in force, they promised to import no English goods, and the people promised not to ask for such goods. Then many wealthy people agreed to wear homespun instead of English cloths, and to stop eating mutton in order to have more sheep to produce wool for this homespun, thus showing a willingness to give up for the cause some of the luxuries which they had learned to enjoy. Of course, the stand taken by the colonists angered the king. He called them rebels and sent soldiers to Boston to help enforce the law 1768. From the first the people of Boston felt insulted at having these soldiers in their midst and it was not long before trouble broke out. In a street fight at night the troops fired upon the crowd, killing and wounding a number of men. This caused great excitement. The next day, under the leadership of Samuel Adams, the citizens of Boston demanded that all the soldiers should be removed, fearing more serious trouble if the demand was disregarded. The officers withdrew the soldiers to an island in the harbor. Still the feeling did not die down. The new taxes were a constant irritation. Only slaves would submit to such an injustice, said Samuel Adams, and his listeners agreed. In Massachusetts and in other colonies the English goods were refused, and, as in the case of the Stamp Act, the English merchants felt the pinch of heavy losses, and begged that the new tax laws be repealed. Samuel Adams and the Boston Tea Party feeling grew stronger and matters grew worse until at length, after something like three years, Parliament took off all the new taxes except the one on tea. They must pay one tax to know we keep the right to tax, said the king. It was as if the king's followers had winked slyly at one another and said, We shall see, we shall see. Those colonists must have their tea to drink, and a little matter of threepence a pound they will overlook. It would have been much better for England if she had taken off all the taxes and made friends with the colonists. Many leaders in that country said so, but the stubborn king was bent upon having his own way. I will be king. He, 